on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Kuntla, and I am thrilled to share with you my views derived from a lifetime of listening on the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her. Or, God, I love him. Now, without any further ado... I bring you today's episode. Hello, Counter Melody fans and friends. I'm so pleased to welcome you back to episode three of Counter Melody. Today's episode consists of the second part of my interview with countertenor Nicholas Tamania. We speak about many things, some of which we touched on in the first part of our interview last week, as well as several pathways that we did not yet pursue. Please note that if you visit the website for the podcast at countermelodypodcast.com that's countermelodypodcast one word.com you can find further information about Nicholas as well as show notes to this page which include links to some of the singers that we'll be talking about today I have been encouraged to share more music with you on this podcast. So, in that spirit, I am going to offer you an uninterrupted performance of Nicholas singing Here the Deities Approve from Purcell's Ode to St. Cecilia, Welcome to All the Pleasures. This is a performance with Vincent Dumestre conducting Le Poème Harmonique. Live and thrive, 
Tenor Nicholas Tamania has garnered widespread acclaim for his commanding stage presence, expressive vocal timbre, breathtaking musicianship, and superb acting skills. The New York Times has described him as a standout, singing with a luminous countertenor, strong coloratura, and dramatic conviction. In 2019, he joins the Wiener Staatsoper and Metropolitan Opera, making his debuts in both houses, covering productions of Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream as Oberon and Handel's Agrippina as Narciso, respectively. He has sung leading roles in operas by Handel, Philip Glass, Hase, Gluck, Leonardo Vinci, Monteverdi, Jonathan Dove, and others, with Parnassus Arts, the Oldenburgische Staatstheater, the Nederlandse Reisopera, Lautenkompagnie, the Opera de Haute-Normandie-Rouen, the Theater an der Wien, the Melbourne Consort, the Musikfestspiele Potsdam, and the Handelfestspiele Halle. In the United States, he has sung with Opera Omaha, the Florentine Opera Company, the Spoleto Festival USA, and at Carnegie Hall. His recording, Son of England, music of Jeremiah Clarke and Henry Purcell, with Vincent Dumestre and Le Poème Harmonique, is currently available on the Alpha Classics label. We'll start this part of the interview with a discussion of what music was like for Nicholas growing up. People who know me know this, but I grew up in a very musical family, but I certainly did not grow up in an opera-loving family. come from music but my mother and aunts were singers and they had a band and they were touring rock pop music of the 80s so for me this was my musical education growing up my stagecraft education they were doing heart white snake madonna cindy lauper paula abdul i mean it was all of this stuff and they would do you know houston they did everything i grew up with this amazing uh, an approach to music that was all joy and it was all high energy and 
and about putting on a show and what that energetically takes to be on on stage. And I watched my mother do that. I mean, I learned that from my mother, how to work with an audience. <laughs> But your touch is too low Darling, please wait Before you go So many times I want to tell you This won't always be like it is I'll be around just like I tell you fourth wall right. when you're a rock singer and you're just out there with the audience. It's all about the audience. That's right. So in the Baroque times, especially when you get into the high Baroque, I think it was also all about the singers selling it to that audience that was their, their clack, their fan club. What I learned a lot from my mother, too, was how to sing with abandon. My first education in singing had nothing to do with rules about singing and what you should and shouldn't do. So I had already this freedom around music that was it built into me as a child. I studied piano and I did a lot of musical theater and then I was very encouraged by my family to do this. It was always a part of my life and I knew I was always going to be in some way involved. That, by the way, was a song called Remember Me, performed by Nicholas's mother and aunts, Kathy, Carol, and Marianne Evans, known professionally as Leather and Lace. This song was written for them by Porter Carroll Jr. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I then asked Nicholas about any influence that opera might have had in his musical upbringing. I remember at 10, and my grandmother can attest to this, that I would sit in front of the TV when Channel 13 PBS would play the Met live broadcast, and I was mesmerized by it at like 10, 11 years old. Do you remember one in particular? The first one that I ever saw was Mephistofele, which is a very strange one for a kid. Was that the one from San Francisco, you mean, with Sam Raimi? It was with Sam Raimi, yes. And, and Gabriela It was this production. So that was my first ever opera. 
Of course I am going to jump in again. One can't simply mention Mephistophele without including an excerpt from that unbelievable opera. So here is the very obscure Italian diva Maria Vitale singing the second verse of L'Altra Notte. says I just sat in front of the TV mesmerized by these people creating these characters and singing the whole time for like god knows how many hours that opera is <laughs> and I was obsessed I didn't come to opera until later that was just something I think that it piqued my interest and then it wasn't until I got to college really I started in college as a pianist and was but always... you also had some musical theater experience before you went to college I right? did and I had this great high school that I went to that did musicals every year they did two and we had a really talented cast I go back and listen sometimes to old tapes of us. You know, we were pretty good for a bunch of high school kids. So what was your best role in a musical? I was really good at, as Billy Bigelow in Carousel. OMG! At 17. No small feat, I guess. I guess not. <laughs> but, and uh, what was your favorite, though? The show that came up twice, that I did get to do twice, was Oliver. I was Oliver when I was a little kid. And that was my first taste of being in a role in a theatrical production. Please Caught the bug and it was and it was, was amazing like to be the theater or something. Or? It was the high school. It was, was the, the local high school. Ah, uh, so you went in as a youngster as to, to the high school production of yep. Oliver, and they brought in all the elementary school kids yes. to play the children. They auditioned all Lakes. of us. 
And I got the part. I got the part of wow. Oliver. That was an amazing chance. He gets to sing Who Will Buy, doesn't Who Will he? Buy. Which is such a gorgeous. And I, of course, have a lovely little recording of little Nikki singing this. Okay, uh, <laughs> we are going to have to get a copy of that. You are going to have to dig that out from both <laughs> When I got to high school, I finally played Fagin. So I actually got to flip the switch and play a completely different character. That musical I had the most experience with because I did it so many times. What happens when I'm 70? Must come a time, 70. When you're old and it's cold and who cares if you live or you die? One consolation's the money you may have put by. I'm reviewing the situation. I'm a badin and a badin I shall stay. You'll be seeing no transformation. But it's wrong to be a rogue in every way. I don't want nobody for me or made to do this dirt for The rotten life is not for me, it's getting far too hard for me Don't want no one to rob from me, but who will change the plot for me? There is no in-between for me But who will change the scene for I think I better think it out again. <laughs> My grandfather loved musical theater and loved old movies and introduced me at a young age to this. So he used to get VHS copies of things and we would sit in the basement and watch all of these old movies. He was giving me this whole classic film education. And so I watched all of the musicals at a very young age and he played the piano, but mostly he was like a chart reader. So he so put he, a he, chord chart in front of him and he could kind of improv it. And,
And so I was singing all of these songs with him, like Pennies from Heaven, you know, all of these songs from the 20s and 30s. And I would just read it over his shoulder and sing these songs. And he was always amazed. How is he learning this? And I was learning by ear and eventually learned how to read music because I was learning piano. And I just got into that. So that's where so, your performing spontaneity comes from. Yes. Way back. Because I was encouraged as a kid to just, hey, Nikki, get up, sing a song. So this was from a young age, this encouragement to just do it. Because this podcast is all about great singers and great singing, I am going to make a point of asking all of my guests to name for me three singers who are or have been particularly influential and important to them. I asked Nicholas this question and he had three very interesting answers for me. It's interesting because when you posed the question, it took a little bit of time for me because I think I spent so much time trying to come up with my own ideas that I'm not always hyper-focused on what other singers have done or what they're doing. Of no, course. No, but can I, I just want to say one little thing. Yeah. But I think that there is a wealth of information and knowledge to be gleaned from listening to what Italian style sounded like in 1910. I agree with you completely that one never wants to really rely on what somebody else is doing, what ornament of course you know, singer X is using I mean I uh, only say it because I feel a little bit like that's why there was a bit of a stutter in my brain of yeah singers yes uh, but then as I thought about it there's certain people who come to mind within the classical arena and one of the most amazing communicators that I wish I had the honor of having met was Lorraine Hunt Lieberson for me there was something about her singing that touched me in a very honest way. Everything I've ever heard of hers, everything I've ever watched from the Giulio Cesare where she sang Caraspeme to her singing of Bach in particular. Her... Have you ever seen that astonishing clip of her singing, I think it's Irene in Theodora? Yes. Have you ever seen that? This is stunning. I mean, that just, I, I can barely think of it without tears coming to my eyes. No.
she could tap into that communicative emotional space within your body that she just knew how to then translate through her voice and through the music she had to create. She's just a huge example of the goal I want in my own life. Is oh, I want to create music like she created music. I, I, I don't want to be her. I don't want to do what she did, but I want to do it in the way that she did it. I but listen to her was, the most. That was, so, that was what was so exceptional about her, I would propose, that it was very much her own way. Yeah. It was nobody else's way. Yes. That's what made her such a vital and such an important singer. In particular, what she does for me personally, when I listen to her, I feel like she's saying, you have license to do this too. She gives you this generosity that I feel like as a singer, when you listen to her, that it's inviting you to find your own path with that, that exploration of authenticity and honesty with your art. A generosity of spirit. Yes. Yeah, you can just hear it. It's in the voice. I don't know how else to explain it. Because it's a quality that practically vibrates in the sound. Yes. And I, this is for me so important. Also from that same perspective of communication and that same thing about meaning, but also because I love the way in which he was able to use language was Björling as well. That, uh, that's UC Björling. UC Björling, yeah. Right. And right. there's something in the way in which he approaches vowels that resonates with me. Read 
Exactly where I would want that vowel to be. So you know, this it's a is... very interesting thing about Bierling, though. He was not by any stretch of the imagination a linguist. You hear him making Italian errors, errors up until the very end of his life. But yet there is that question of just embodying resonance. Yes. And in so many ways, he is a paragon among tenors. He is. And for me, that's not necessarily my go-to voice type. I don't listen to a lot of tenor recordings. It's weird because it overlaps a bit with the countertenor voice, but it's not the same. And I don't always hear where they're placing. It feels completely different from where I would place certain notes. So for me, it can be a little confusing to listen to. So when you were singing tenor, were you listening to Bjarne? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I listened to a lot of different... I listened to him. I listened to Gedda, I listen to a lot of different yeah, yeah. I still take from Björling this vowel idea. Even if it's not the perfect placement in terms of consonants and language. But he can be downright mispronouncing a word and yet the vowel never fails. The vowel never yeah, fails yeah. and this is so important. Yeah. It's the life thread of singing is the vowel. Yes. One singer in particular, of course, one of my loves to listen to would have to be Nina Simone. This is just a soulful, amazing sound. It's so unique. It's so unearthly in a weird way.
The world got Nina Simone because she couldn't get hired to do what she wanted to do and what she was trained to do. To be be a a classical classical pianist. pianist. (laughs) Because she simply couldn't. She started playing in clubs and eventually singing. And look what we ended up with. And man... Talk about somebody just doing her own thing and screw everybody else. I love it. And sometimes there was very much that that attitude was behind her performance. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen some of those clips where she starts reading audience members who she thinks are not Mm. paying proper attention. I love it. Talk about being a high priestess of music. She was really one of the supreme ones. Absolutely. I would say she definitely affects my sense of performing too. I mean, I've watched her so many times. I love the way in which she comes to music. She's just her. And nobody else. Of course, she's with her musicians. She's communicating, of course. But there's something when you watch her that it's like she left the room. And she's like up here somewhere. (laughs) She taps into this amazing thing where she's like out of her own body. It's a really amazing thing to watch. When I watch that, I can relate. I've had moments like this on stage where I feel like I'm almost watching myself from above. It's a weird feeling. And often after the fact, it's like you've just woken up from a dream and I can never remember exactly what it was I did or what happened. It's an incredibly spiritual experience. That's happened to me a few times too. And it is virtually indescribable. For me, the real magic of music is marrying text to that art form for singer. You create magic by understanding that the text and the music have different roles to play and that they have to converse with each other. And I feel like I'm always trying to find ways to play with that aspect. And one of the biggest things I find as I get into this phase of my career, I'm getting more and more comfortable with the idea of saying something, settling in that, and taking time and a beat before I move on. And this idea of silence is something that you learn as you get a little bit older and and it's something that you start to cherish more and more within music. And I think that it's important. And I have a a few moments like this in the operas I'm currently doing. I'm literally almost pushing it to the edge of what might be appropriate of how much time to take before you move on. And, And in one case, I think it's what made that particular moment special was that I was able to trust that the silence was enough to let the word hang and then continue. And if you can do this, especially in recitative, sometimes in areas where musically it's begging for this moment of silence. If we trust that more as musicians, it brings a lot to bear. And that's another important part of language, in my opinion, is knowing where to rush to and where to take the time before the next idea needs to happen. Having that makes it more human, too, because it looks more extemporaneous when it's not just a string of words. It's that you've actually thought through, well, this is what I'm saying in this sentence, and maybe there's a clause before I say the next thing. And using the musical rhetorical language to highlight that, if it's already in place, which a good composer will do, and 
I feel Baroque music does in many cases Most extremely well. Emphatically so, yes. And, and that's particularly true of Handel. There's so much rhetorical structure to the text. Yes. And I think um, you have to trust that. And that's something I think we as singers get used to. I, I feel like there was a school of thought for a long time, especially with recitative, to just go really fast. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and I don't agree with that. I think, yes, there are spots where an Italian is one of these languages, especially, that sometimes the meaning is about the to the point. But we're but, actors as well, aren't we? We and are. in acting, you have beats. Yes. Dramatic if... beats as opposed to musical beats. Exactly. And it's interesting sometimes to figure out how the musical beat and the dramatic beat go together or are at odds with each other or whatever. But this is another aspect to singing text that is all important. I have a particular advantage in that language was very important to me along the way in my studies. So studying French, studying Italian, and then working on German in the last five years because of working so much in Germany, I already had an interest in language. Right. So it wasn't like I was being forced to do homework I didn't want to do. as a musician, yes. I think of myself as an actor, yes. I think of myself as a linguist. I enjoy language. I enjoy studying it. But all of these things, what they have in common, and this is the overarching goal of my life, is to be a communicator. Emotional content, linguistic content, historical content, anything. What is the best way to communicate to all those people? 
people sitting in there that I'm communing with on the stage. Trying to bring all of those things together and marry them into something that the audience... And to make it all seem spontaneous. And to make it all seem spontaneous. Because that's the other aspect of this, that when one is in fact committed to communication, that opens the door to spontaneity. Exactly. Because then you can respond in the moment in a different way to the exact same text and the exact same music and that no two performances will ever be the same because there's this element that is the great unknown, the very moment in which we are standing. And it's the whole reason that we commune in the theater in the first place. Absolutely. Thanks again to Nicholas for being such a wonderful interview subject. As you just heard from his performance of The Hymn to the Sun from Philip Glass's Achnaten, he has done a good deal of contemporary music. I'd like to tell you about two new recording projects that Nicholas has been involved with. Both of these projects have just been released and feature work of contemporary composers. One is a collection of compositions by Jessica Meyer, on which Nicholas performs The Seasons of Basho, Song cycle to texts by the Japanese poet Matsuo Basho. On this recording, Nicholas is joined by the composer herself, Jessica Meyer, on viola, and Adam Marks on the piano. This album is available on the Bright Shiny Things label. The second CD in question is of songs by the self-taught and heretofore virtually unknown composer Lola Williams, who died in 2013, but whose music contains echoes, in fact, of Delius and Mahler. On this recording, Nicholas performs several songs alongside soprano Sarah Moulton Foe and pianist Ted Taylor. This recording is now available on the New World Records label. Also, as I mentioned at the beginning of the previous podcast, episode Two, Nicholas has just recently recorded the opera Gismondo Re di Polonia of Leo Vinci with Parnassus and the O Orchestra. This recording is due for release this coming December. Underscoring for Counter Melody is provided by composer Alan Segal. Logo design is by Joel Richter. Technical and artistic advisor, Steve Robinson. 
You can find out more about all of these characters by visiting the website for Countermelody at countermelodypodcast.com. That's countermelodypodcast, one word, dot com. I have also set up a new Patreon page, which is linked on the website for those who are interested in providing continuing support to the Countermelody initiative. Remember that you can also find extensive show notes to each episode on the Counter Melody podcast website. Counter Melody is also available not only through the website, but also through whatever platform you use to obtain your podcasts. Speaking of which, I do have a favor to ask. Please subscribe to me there and rate and review me there as well. As long as you have something positive to say, no, you can say whatever you want, it's okay. For this particular episode, I'd also like to thank my student, Eric Schlossberg, for having acted as our audio engineer. As Eric is a countertenor himself, we had the somewhat unusual situation of having three countertenors all in the same room together. And getting along, it was marvelous. Please join me again next week for the next episode of Counter Melody. Friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.